0: changing the world of work isn't about tactics it's not about meetings or metrics it isn't about the benefits perks or opportunities it's about being brave enough to put love first everything rises and falls on leadership so as leaders we're the ones who have to make it happen this is the love in action podcast and here's your host marcel Schwantes.
1: From the scenic city in beautiful Chattanooga, Tennessee, welcome Love and Action Nation and the world to episode 25. We are now heard worldwide in 17 countries. I'm happy to announce, so glad you could join the conversation about how to bring more love and care into your leadership and workplace for competitive advantage. You know, people are naturally wired to connect with each other. But in today's workplace, we're hypnotized by these devices that are glued to our hands, and we hide behind our computer screens. And we're more interested in gaining followers, likes, and shares than developing real relationships. And in the digital age, plain and simple, we have forgotten how, when, and why to connect with people. So in a compelling new book titled Connect First, 52 Ways to Ignite Success, Meaning, and Joy at Work, psychologist and executive coach, Dr. Melody Katzman, gives actionable advice for restoring joy and amplifying success at work through the power of human connection. Dr. Katzman found that connecting first as humans and then as colleagues and bosses and coworkers is the solution to almost any conflict. But even if you're convinced that connecting with people works, it's challenging for us to know how to do it. So Dr. Katzman joins us today to tell us about some of those 52 actionable tips. So who is Dr. Melanie Katzman? Well, she is a business psychologist, advisor, and consultant to the world's top organizations and government agencies. She is the founder of Katzman Consulting, and a founding partner of the global nonprofit Leaders Quest. Melanie was a senior fellow at the Wharton School's Center for Leadership and Change Management, and she co-created and hosted the show Women at Work on Sirius XM. She's been featured in the Financial Times, New York Times, Vanity Fair, among others, and has made numerous television appearances on ABC, CBS, and Lifetime. It's my extreme pleasure to have you on the show, Melody. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Marcel. It's my pleasure to be here.
1: So I always start with this. What makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days?
0: Perhaps appropriate to a show called Love in Action. Um, <laughs> I wake up in the morning, unless I'm on the road traveling, with my husband of 35 years, who was right. my boyfriend for eight years before that. And so I don't take that for granted. And waking up with Russell is a great way to start the day. And if that isn't warm and cuddly enough, we've got two twin cats. They're black and they're called Thunder and Lightning. And they tend to running (laughs) around and letting us know it is time to rise and shine.
1: (laughs) Fantastic. So for people just learning about this book, let's skim the surface a little bit first. What's the big idea behind it? Why, Why did you choose to write it? Why now?
0: Well, the big idea is actually the simplicity of it all. Um, As a coach, as a consultant, as a psychologist, over the last three decades, I found that no matter where I was working, what part of the world, no matter what level of an organization, people were saying the same things over and over again. They were feeling disrespected, disengaged, um, suffering with a lack of confidence, in some instances being extremely depressed for reasons that seemed avoidable. And I thought, At a certain point, we really need to stop and take a look at the many things that can be done on a daily basis to improve our lives and the lives of the people that we work with or work for.
1: Mm. So the book is broken down into uh, seven parts. So let's start drilling down on some of those parts. So I want to start with uh, establishing respect. So what did you find about respect? I mean, how, how can we practice respect more effectively in this age where... People disrespect each other all the time.
0: Well, you know, Marcel, one of the things about the book is that I, I have a big dream. I have a big mission. I really would like to see people make the mindset shift that changes the world. But if we don't change ourselves, we can't change anything around us. Mm. And so to lay the foundation for really big shifts— we need to change the basics, pay attention to them. So I start with respect, which many people might say, oh, that seems incredibly basic. Aren't you telling us the things that we all should know? You know, Smile, say please, say thank you, give praise. It's like, yes, we all may know it, but we don't do it. And so I started the book with smile because it is actually, it's a neuro hack. If you Hmm. smile at someone, they smile back at you. It's Unavoidable, right? I mean, like we're smiling at each other, like you can't that's help it. That's amazing. Right?
1: Yeah, it and works.
0: So it works. So it's effective. It doesn't cost anything. The whole book is filled with ideas that don't take any time and don't cost money. And that's the point. So I started with a smile because that really ignites that engagement immediately. And then I go on to remind people of the things that they know they should do, but somehow they seem to have forgotten.
1: Yeah. And one of those things is even something like you said, as basic as saying "please."
0: Thank you. This past weekend, I was um, part of a professional meeting where I felt I had really put out a fair amount of energy to try to facilitate, make things happen beyond what was really my prescribed role, if you will. Mm. And it struck me at the end of the evening when people were being thanked, that it felt really bad not to be appreciated. You now, yeah. I'm a professional. Uh, lots of people were acknowledging my contribution, but the person who had convened the group forgot to say anything. And it's dumb.
1: Yeah, and yeah.
0: I think it's, we are not immune to that. You know, that no matter how long you've been in the workforce, no matter the job you have, that to be um, forgotten when it's time for a thank you is to really feel as if you have been forgotten. And yeah. I want to help people get out of the shadows and not to ever feel as though they've been marginalized or ignored or that their presence doesn't matter. And so a thank you says to somebody, I, I see you and I appreciate it. A please says to somebody, it may be your job, but let us at least have the convenient corporate fiction that you have the opportunity to say yes
1: or no. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to play the, the, the person that's probably listening going, yeah, this is all touchy-feely stuff. Give me yeah. the, the meat and the potatoes. Why would this matter from a business standpoint?
0: Well... You know, the last thing you want when you're a business um, leader or a member of a team is for someone to stop giving you information, for them to stop trying. And people who get pissed off, disengaged, turning in on themselves are not going to be active participants. They're going to see something and they're not going to say something. And what we don't want is human error to undermine our effectiveness in an organization. I think everybody that's working wants to get the best highest quality information as quickly and as frequently as possible. And if you alienate people, they will not perform for you. So this is not light fluffy stuff. This is directly related to the outcomes that we all aspire to in the office.
1: Mm, Perfect. Love it. So you talk about how we need to engage all our senses to truly connect. So what does that look like exactly? And how does that help us?
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for the question because people have said to me, what do you mean you have a section on basically being sensual at work? And I don't <laughs> mean being inappropriate. I mean, being attentive. So you know, see everybody, you know, people will walk into a room and the only ones who they lay their eyes on are the people who have power. And, When you put somebody into the shadows, again, you put them down, you diminish their ego, you stop listening to what they have to say or they don't even share it with you. So one of the things I encourage people to do is to see everybody walking down the hall. Don't have your face in the phone. Look up, see the people around you, smile, have some small talk, but see, listening is A full body sport, if you ask me. We too often listen in an effort to um, reinstate or restate our ideas. We're listening because we want to make an argument. Or sometimes even when we're trying to be empathetic, we're scanning our autobiographical, you know, library for something to say that says, oh, okay, I've done that too. And we're doing everything but actually focusing on what the message is that the person is trying to communicate to us. So Mm. I encourage deep listening I also suggest that people share food together. You know, breaking bread is a time-honored tradition, and it's a way of getting to know people's cultures. It's a chance to slow things down for just a few minutes to be able to make the investment in relationships that will speed things up later. So you know, in the book, I go through a number of different ways that we engage our senses because, again, we could theoretically do it naturally, but the reality is that more people are putting their faces in their phones than making eye contact with the people around them. So I did need to say it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So part three was really good for me to, to, to read over. It's, it's about becoming popular, but I take that to mean how you carry yourself. And it's really about presence and uh, even from an an emotional standpoint, right, showing emotional presence or I I guess I should say emotional honesty, perhaps. Um, So tell us about the importance of being popular, but can you define that a little more for us? Yes,
0: yes. And I really, again, there's some of the ways in which I chose my titles was to be purposefully a bit provocative. Because when people think about being popular, it sounds like the middle school cafeteria. And I am, yeah. am I the person who you know people are going to save a seat for when the noon bell rings. And I I did it on purpose because I want the people I work with. I always tell them that all of the coaches that I see, I want them to be the person that when their name comes up on the caller ID, people want to pick it up. When their email or their Slack message comes through, people are going to respond to you. And people respond to people who show an interest in them, are curious, have patience, are present, as you said, who bring them knowledge, who make them smarter as a result of the interaction. So I purposely chose popular to be evocative, but to also underscore the importance of being the person people want to be with, because this will help you advance in your career if you're included in projects. And it will help you advance the organization if people are coming to you and including you and your team.
1: Yeah. So you say that one of the ways we can become popular with others, and I like this, is to hijack their right brain. Yes. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, we have perhaps our cool analytical side, um, and that's our left brain. And then we have our right brain, which tends to be um, the more artistic, warmer side. And if we can tap into the emotional side of our brain, it's the superhighway. It's the way in which people, before you even realize it, have come on side. And one of the best ways to do that is by telling stories. It reduces our defenses. It allows your listener to calm down, to relate to you in a way that is different than spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations. So I encourage people to learn how to tell a good story, which means you have to be attentive to your audience. And in so doing, you're really tapping into that part of our biology that helps us connect.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So part five of your book is all about resolving conflict. And, you know, I got to tell you, conflict, it takes skill and not having the skill can really cause more damage and burn bridges with people. So from a, a connecting with people standpoint, what would you say? How do we do that effectively? Resolve conflict without losing connection and pissing people off.
0: So actually, I think people make the mistake of thinking that they have a good relationship if there's been no conflict in a relationship. Hmm. And I would argue that you don't have a real relationship until you have experienced conflict and gotten through it and come to the other side of it. And so I encourage people to name the elephant in the room, you know, put words on that topic or issue that no one is talking about. To be able to strike what I call a psychological contract with your colleagues, to be able to say, is it okay if I give you some feedback and how much honesty is acceptable in our relationship? And when you do that in advance, when you then come to somebody and say, by the way, I just wanted to tell you, you know, in that meeting, I think you went off a little bit too far. It doesn't seem as though somebody is out to get you, but this seems like somebody who is a partner who's helping you do your best work. So there's a number of ways in which I um, indicate in the book how to apologize, how to receive an apology, how to name the conflict, how to present it, to know also when to stop. Now you need to advocate for yourself, but there's times when you need to lean back and let the system kind of work itself out. So I, I thought conflict was key to connection and we can't avoid it. We really just need to learn, as you say, the skills to, to handle conflict well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So now I'm curious, because you brought up, you know, how to effectively apologize. Can you give us a good example of, and I guess maybe that depends on the situation, I know, but how how do you do that effectively?
0: Yeah, there's some really good kind of um, apology hygiene uh, points to make. I mean, one is if you're going to say, I'm sorry, say, I am sorry, not offer the excuses. Be specific. What is it that you're apologizing for? Um, Don't assume you know how you made somebody feel. Um, and don't tell the person that I'm sorry you feel that way, Marcel. That's like the most classic error. You know? <laughs> I know right. I did the wrong thing and I'm really sorry you feel that way. It's like, no, this is an apology about my behavior, taking responsibility for it, um, being specific about what went wrong. And in doing so, it's often the case that somebody will then tell you really what was wrong wrong, which may not be exactly what you thought you were apologizing for, which is, again, part of getting the data you need to do your job well. Because sometimes you think you've done X, but the reason people are upset is Y. So when you approach them with an apology, be ready to listen. Don't come assuming you know exactly why people are upset. Be ready to listen. Don't make excuses. And ideally, figure out ways to avoid it from happening again. And if there's an opportunity to make restitution then explore what that might be.
1: Yeah, and what I get from that is that when you acknowledge maybe a wrongdoing and you're humble about it, it opens the other person up to helping one resolve this, you know, the conflict.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, when we are angry, if you look at kind of the... Um, the, the neurobiology of anger, if you were to take an fMRI or a study of the way in which our body lights up when in certain emotional states, anger and love are often um, experienced in the same way biologically. So if you were to look at um, an fMRI of someone who was in love and somebody who was angry, they're lighting up in many of the same places. So when we get really deeply angry with someone, it is often because we care deeply. So to be able to manage those hot, passionate emotions is critical because you don't want a cold, disengaged workforce. You want people to be excited, to be motivated. We talk all the time about having passionate, purpose-filled workplaces. Well, you're not going to have that without also then having some heated reactions, which might include anger. So let's not be afraid of it. Let's engage it and let's use it to deepen the relationships that we have with one another.
1: Mm. Yeah. Okay. So we mentioned uh, already, you know, the problem with technology and how that's creating all kinds of uh, issues with connecting with people or disconnecting people and isolating people. So, and then you mentioned also, you know, maybe lack of listening, et cetera. We're losing our ability to be more human because of all these things. So besides that, do you see any other trends that are causing people to just forget how to connect as human beings in the workplace?
0: I think there's a couple of things. One, obviously, is technology, as you mentioned. The other is the speed, which is associated with technology. But there's an instantaneous reaction that we expect. As soon as I have sent it over the airways, I expect you then in some way to respond. And better yet, to complete the suggested activity. So Mm -hmm. we're all always running to complete things. Often companies, um, no matter what their size, are resource-strapped. And one of the greatest resources in low supply is time. So everybody is moving quickly and they don't feel like they have time for the niceties or they're just trying to be efficient. And efficiency ends up being the excuse for incivility. And so I think that is one of the things that's causing us some issues. The other is that we are no longer as co-located as we once were. So here, technology has enabled us to you know, work and collaborate with people around the world or to not necessarily be chained to our desks. But what happens is we don't have the natural interactions that might occur if you were just in the same room with somebody else. So I think that's a, you know, another contributing factor. So it's great that we have an opportunity to have remote workers. We just need to focus on how to bring them in and make sure that remote workers don't feel so remote.
1: Hmm. OK, let's put us back in uh, in the halls and within the walls of a business environment. OK, so. How does a lack of human connection get in the way of things like performance and productivity and meeting your goals?
0: Uh, you know, you ever think <laughs> about those cartoons where you see a speech bubble above somebody's head and they're thinking one thing, but they're saying something else? Yeah. And I think that uh, the lack of the human connection leads to a lot of conversation in our heads with ourselves in which we develop a whole narrative about what the other person thinks or feels about us. And oftentimes we're wrong. And so if we don't have a connection, we don't have a quality conversation, we end up running our lives at work on two different channels. One which is like the channel that's in my head, and the other that's the channel that might actually have you know incredibly important data, where I able to have the proper conversation with somebody. So, you know, at work is always about, I think the quality of the input it will determine the output. And the lack of the human connection creates a whole lot of noise in a system that could use much cleaner inputs and output.
1: Mm. Okay, so you're a psychologist. You were on the faculty of Cornell Medical School for so many years. So here's our chance to geek out on the science, okay? Okay. (laughs) So what does the science say about why people need human connections and and what do they do for us?
0: Well, so, so we're wired to connect. If you actually look at the... Really exciting work is coming out of neurobiology. We see that a brain at rest, when you're not doing um, your Excel tabulations or you're not preparing for your sales pitch, that the brain at rest is actually scanning the environment for social cues, that we will synchronize our breathing and our heart rate to the people around us. Hmm. We are social beings, and oxytocin is the bonding hormone. It makes us feel good. It makes us feel safe. When we are bonded, when oxytocin is flowing, we are able to innovate. We're able to collaborate. We're able to make mistakes and feel as though we will be safe on the other side of it. By contrast, if we are in a fight or flight um, setting, our cortisol levels are racing through our body. And cortisol is very effective. You need it if you're going to have to you know, punch that bear or um, run from the aggressor. But most of the time, it's a false alarm. And so we're pumping our body with stress hormones that are leading to all sorts of high blood pressure, stomach issues, headaches, lowered immune systems. So unfortunately, in the workplace, when people are running from fear, either because it's accurate or because they perceive it you know, incorrectly, our body will still experience it the same, but people end up with cortisol poisoning as opposed to oxytocin, you know, mm. wonderful conditioning. So, you know, I think we really want to work on making biology work for us. And so connect first, as you say, you know, could sound like the fluffy stuff, but actually it's connected to business outcomes. It's connected to health people who connect better, feel better, they have better lives and they have better outcomes.
1: Yeah. Okay, we're going to come back to cortisol and cortisol's effects on people, especially when fear yeah. is involved, but let me, uh, let me touch on, um, you know, most of our listeners are people in leadership roles, managers, et cetera. So for them, how can they make sure their teams are connecting as human beings in the workplace? So
0: some so really simple things. People will walk into a, a conference room or they join a conference call. And maybe there'll be a whiz around to say, okay, who's on, who's on, you hear a name and that's it. I, I suggest you take just a couple of minutes and ask everybody to say one thing. Like, what do you see outside your window? What did you do on the way to work? Like one line, let's not get overly complicated, but what do I see outside my window? Well, I'm here in Manhattan. I can tell you, I look out my window and I see the Freedom Tower and the Empire State Building you're in Tennessee, you're going to see something very different out your window. Um, Somebody who is on a call with their colleagues and they literally locate themselves in space, you're you're grounding Mm. the group. Or you ask everybody, what happened on the way to work? Someone says, well, I had a a herd of buffaloes were crossing the path. They're working in, in a more rural area. Somebody else had to cross a picket line to get to work. Well, that one line, helps you know the mindset of the people on the phone. So that's just a very quick way of being able to say, okay, who's on the phone? What's going on in this moment in time? And then let's carry on. You know, this is not someone going into like, what you eat for dinner and how to spend your weekend. It's just one line giving people a chance to actually contribute and announce their presence.
1: Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about love and fear. We we spend a lot of time, in this podcast, dissecting the, the ways that we can love our, our people better in the workplace. But we also talked about fear is a detriment to love. It gets in the way of uh, yeah. all of the things that you're talking about, how to Absolutely. connect with people. So in your view, Melanie, why is there so much fear in the workplace?
0: I think it has to do with the unknown. You know, when we get, we feel the world, as we're saying, is moving quickly. There's a great deal of transparency, which can operate to our benefit, but can also constantly make us feel as though the competition is upon us. Somebody is going to be better than us or get information, insights in a faster way. And so we're constantly scanning for um the aggressor versus scanning for the ways in which we can connect. And what happens is we don't open our doors. We don't open our minds. We don't open our meetings. We do just the opposite. So in a very unstable, unknown world, when what you really need to do is have a genuine curiosity and a warm embrace of others and their points of view, we do just the opposite. You know, we just close everything down. And we speak to the people who have the same opinions as we do. And so then we further fan those fires of fear. And I, I think so much of this has to do with discomfort about the things in people we don't know.
1: So would you say that's the same with, if we elevated that to a manager level, or an executive level, are we talking about the same thing? I mean, there's so much- okay.
0: Over and over again. I mean, I I was just with um, a group of business people, very senior level, who were dealing with an environmental catastrophe. And one of the challenges was that the first time they ever spoke to the community affected by the tragedy was after the tragedy. And- a lot of it had to do with the discomfort of leaving their offices and just going out into the community what do i say what's what's the opening why am i there and i often say that you know community relations are your best risk management policy go out and get to know people mm-hmm. but many you know leaders do not see it as their responsibility to establish the relationships with people outside of their building mm-hmm. and so you know the fear comes perhaps from being overworked because maybe some people are inherently shy. They don't know whether they're welcome. Everybody's waiting for somebody else to make the initial overture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So how do we reverse fear-based management styles, you know, these micromanagers leading with the iron fist? I mean, is there a first step
0: well, you know, I often think about the details that you really need to pay attention to. And one of the conversations I had with my editor when I was preparing the book was that I wanted to put in a chapter, which I did, about how to be a good host um, into the chapter and fighting fear. And again, there's that concern of, is this, you know, Melanie's fluffy stuff? And I said, oh, no, no. People walk into a meeting and they are going to have some difficult conversations. You want them to be as relaxed as possible. When you bring people in, whether you are the manager bringing somebody in for a review or a leader who wants to have somebody pitch you ideas, you want someone to come in and know, where's the restroom? Have a glass of water. Here's the Wi-Fi code. Do you need an electrical outlet? Let me find out the way you want to be introduced. Let me introduce you by your name pronounced properly. Let me give everybody in the room the same credentials not prefer somebody over another. Um, Introduce somebody in a way that they feel proud to be there and understand why their presence will make a difference. So before anybody even starts a conversation, you've already set the stage for people to feel relaxed, respected, and as if they belong. Because once you feel like you belong, there's a much greater opportunity for you to really say what's on your mind, and why are you bringing people together if not to really have a rich conversation?
1: Yeah, yeah, and so there's the flip side of fear, and that is love, and and you know our audience already knows, and we we've educated the understanding of love in this in this sense is not touchy feely feelings based; it's not an emotion, but it's action. That's why we call it love in action. Yes. They are behaviors caring behaviors that lead to impact and raising human performance and helping people to belong. Right. So yeah. So you told me uh, earlier in the call uh, before actually we got on about hearing the, the word love for the first time in the workplace. Share, share with us that story.
0: Thanks for asking Marcel, because I really, when I knew that I was going to be coming on your show, it took me back in time to about 2006 and I was um, working in India mm-hmm. and it was a group of people who were coming from many different sectors, the corporate sector, the the political, the civic, um, and NGO worlds. And we were talking about um, how one solves problems that are shared across communities. And the NGO leaders were talking about the importance of love and how they are sharing and spreading love. These were not missionaries. These were people who were educators, helping um, people in India who were uh, considered the untouchables. And here they were saying, uh, we approach them with love. And another person who was there who was a religious business leader said, I actually think about love in my business. I'm a family business leader. And in my family, it's all about the legacy and what we're going to leave behind. And I love my family and I love the generation I've met and the generations yet to meet. And so now we have these two groups in the room talking about love. And I'm thinking, okay, I got to shut this down. Like love does not belong here. Um, And here I am, I'm the psychologist And I'm the one who's supposedly, you know, dealing with all the soft side. And I was so uncomfortable. And I left that meeting still uncomfortable because I did not go to the love side. I actually thought, you know, we're going to lose people um, in this conversation if we think about it from a love perspective, which has all sorts of precarious undertones or overtones. And then over the course of the next few years, I thought, what is it that I'm really asking people to do? I'm asking them to give of themselves, to make an emotional connection, to recognize that I care for you like I care for anybody else I care about, and that we can't split ourselves in half and walk into an office and assume a role and a certain costume or work clothes and behave as one person and not be the same individuals we would be with our family. And that moment I said, Ooh, I think I need to find the names and numbers of everybody that was in that room a few years ago (laughs) and say that, all right, you know what, actually, I'm re you know, as I've been thinking about it, and as it's been kind of simmering inside that actually love is critical that that kind of care and concern for the people around you is going to make the difference. And, um, I've now become a, a love advocate, you
1: know, Yes. It is critical. And in fact, the word has entered the business lexicon. And I know this because I'm in, and just like you are, I'm in the middle of the research. Um, Some of us don't call it love, but uh, when it comes right down to it, that's what we're talking about. In fact, last week's guest on the show was Steve Farber and he just wrote a book called Love is Just Damn Good Business. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's a coming out, party for for love and love and action. That's why we do what we do. So yeah. I appreciate those thoughts. I want to bring this conversation home by asking you to kind of share with us what's what's really tugging at your heart right now that you'd like our listeners to know.
0: I think, you know, we've really touched on it, and that is the divisiveness that happens between people when we are afraid and cease to pursue a conversation with people who are different than ourselves. And I just look at what's happening in the world, what's happening in our country, but in other countries beyond the States. And I worry about people becoming polarized out of fear and out of um, ignorance. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about what's my role in that and how can I take the skills that I have and contribute to some sort of um, increased conversational um, capability so that maybe people would be less afraid and less separated.
1: Mm. And you get to end the conversation your way, however you choose, with a final thought, a comment, a mic drop moment. Is there something that you'd like our listeners to walk away with today?
0: Well, Marcel, I wrote the book because I wanted people to have agency, to feel as though they were the ones who could change their own lives. And I believe it's so important for everybody, all the listeners, the readers of my book, to recognize that no matter where you sit, whether you're in the corner office or you're sitting in a corner cubicle or you're just selling goods on the corner, that what you do and how you do it makes all the difference for yourself and for others and for the community around you. So don't be paralyzed. Take action and recognize that that we all have a platform and we should leverage it with intention.
1: Well said. There's a lot of wisdom in that statement. Thank you so much, Melanie. So if people want to connect with you, how can they do that?
0: Follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, at Melanie Katzman, M-E-L-A-N-I-E-K-A-T-Z-M-A-N. And Connect First is available right now for pre-sale um, on all of the major Book outlets. Go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your favorite uh, bookseller, and connect first. Connect quickly. Connect often.
1: <laughs> and we have done that well today. I appreciate you connecting with me. And thanks so much for your time today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So here's what's on my mind after that conversation with Melanie. How often do you actually look at someone, make eye contact, and smile I mean, genuinely smile. You know, every time I do it, not forced, but when I actually, you know, smile and actually mean it, like smile with my eyes, not just my teeth, people always smile back and we connect. And sometimes conversations come out of that brief exchange. It's this neuro hack that could be the starting point to training your brain towards connecting better with others. And I hate to say it, but... You know, with all the technology and our addiction to our devices, we're just forgetting the natural human interactions that need to happen. Even listening, for example, we fail to focus on what the message that's coming from another person is, and that closes us up to empathy. So a few pointers for Melanie. If you want to hijack someone's right brain and really connect with that person, tell them a good story. People are just attracted to a good story. And for those of us that fear conflict, well, truth is, you don't experience real relationship until you go through conflict together. She says, name the elephant in the room, and then work through it together. And by the way, a lack of human connection kind of makes you a little crazy in the head. Melanie says we develop this whole narrative about what the other person thinks and feels about us. And these stories that we tell ourselves in our heads may be total lies, and oftentimes we're really wrong in our conclusions. And that's why, to me, that sounds like a lot of us are perhaps a bit delusional when you know we isolate ourselves from human connections and face-to-face conversations. So we got to lean in, folks. We got to lean into more human connections and overcome our fear of getting close to others. And the first step, to me, is a clear one. We got to place less emphasis on our devices as the primary means to connect. When we do, the impact will be felt immediately. Thanks for joining us, Love and Action Nation. Hope this episode brought you value. If it did, will you do us a favor? Leave us a review and a recommendation on iTunes and share it with your networks because this movement depends on you to carry it forward. Next week, I'll sit down and chat with Dr. Randy Ross, author of Relationomics. Until then, don't forget, love in action. It's what will truly set your leadership apart. Try it. Hey, love in action nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities, whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event. Let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at LoveinAction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L at loveinactionc